0: join me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would work in us what we just sang, that the beauty of Jesus would rest upon us as we seek to win people that are lost to you. Lord, we once were lost, each one of us, in various ways. Confused or mistaken about the identity of Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have put our trust in you, we praise you for helping us see the beauty of Christ. And I pray that you would shape in our hearts and in our lives and our actions the very life that Jesus Christ himself lived on earth, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray all this, that you would do it through your word this morning as we look at it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I was thinking I want to finish the chapter, but as I was working and studying on 1 Corinthians 10, I decided to break it up into um, two more sermons, so this one, and then we'll finish it next week, and we'll be into chapter 11. So 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. This is basically the middle section of chapter 10. And in these verses, what Paul is going to do is he's going to return to a topic that he started the letter off with. Now, if you remember, 1 Corinthians, this is kind of reaching way back to some of our early sermons on 1 Corinthians. It is a letter that Paul wrote doing basically two things. One, he's responding to some reports that he heard about the Corinthians. Things that aren't good going on there. That's up from chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 6. In chapter 7, we get a shift. Paul says, now concerning the things you wrote about. And for the rest of the letter, he's going to answer questions that the Corinthians have asked him about.
1: Basically...
0: Does anybody remember how many topics he covers, total? This is reaching way back. Ten. There's ten topics that Paul covers in his letter to the Corinthians. Some of them they asked him about, some of them he's gotten rumors about. The topic in chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's one topic. Should Christians eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? And they asked him about it. What do you think, Paul? And Paul's answer is, well, it depends. Okay? It's not as cut and dry as you might think. So we, in chapters 9, verse 1, up to 10, verse 13, that we were looking at last week, basically, Paul, Paul isn't taking a detour from the topic of idols, when he's saying run to get the prize and things like that. He's giving illustrations from his own life, and then last week we looked at illustrations from the life of Israel, illustrations of ways to live and ways not to live, okay? In all of it is in relation to this topic of idolatry. And following after idols. So here he's going to return full tilt. You know, he's going to just go right back into talking directly about idolatry. All right? And what he's going to explain is that eating meat sacrificed to idols in idolatrous ceremonies at idol temples is always wrong. And it should be completely avoided by God's people. So don't eat meat sacrificed to idols in the context of a religious service. All right? You must not be participants of demons, says Paul, because he views idols as connected to demons. So we'll be looking at that. Flee idolatry. That's basically Paul's main point here. Flee idolatry because it connects you with demons and not with Jesus. Alright, so what's the main point of this passage? Verses uh, 14 to 22. Flee idolatry because it connects you with demons and not with Jesus. So, that's a quick overview of where we've been and where we're going. Now I'll read the verses. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. See how that's the main point? That's what he's telling them to do. Flee. I am speaking as to sensible people. The word there is wise. I'm speaking to wise people. You've got some wisdom. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion here, the Lord's Supper. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Share in the altar, same word. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So, basically, main point, what Paul is doing, he's giving a command, in the verse 14, flee idolatry. Then, the rest of this little section here, he gives his reasons for it, his rationale for sensible, wise Corinthians to make a judgment about what he's saying and what he's going to do to help them. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying, guys. Here, let me help you. Let me help you make the right judgment about that. Let me let me let me get my uh, you know we, your glasses get fuzzy. I I've been having my glasses feel really um, fuzzy lately, uh, and I realized when I spray painted the canoes in my yard, I got all this gray spray paint on my glasses. So anyway, anybody have any clever ideas how to take that off? But the point is, what Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's. Listen, your thinking on idolatry might have gotten a little fuzzy, okay? There's a little paint on your glasses. Let me clear it off for you. Here's some illustrations. He's going to give them some illustrations. The first illustration is the Lord's Supper. And the second illustration that he's going to give them to think about is Israel's sacrificial ceremonies. And in both of these illustrations eating food here's the common denominator eating food in those ceremonies the lord's supper and back in ancient israel when they're eating food at the altar that they sacrificed the food on eating that food connects them to the lord and it connects them to the people around them who are part of that ceremony so what paul is going to conclude with is that if you eat food in an idol ceremony you are connecting yourself to spiritual forces that are not the God of the Bible and to people around you who are not worshipers of Jesus. So we're going to work through these verses in two main steps. First, we're going to look at Paul's call to flee idolatry, and then we're going to look at his two illustrations together. All right. So keep that passage open in front of you, if you would. Look at verse 14. Right? He's very blunt. Flee idolatry. Then he says, I'm speaking to to wise people, people with wisdom. In Paul's mind, worshiping the creator God alone is the path of wisdom. Worshiping any lesser thing is the path of folly. This is how Paul reads his Bible. We see this contrast between wisdom and foolishness in Romans chapter 1 where Paul is giving a history lesson of humanity, starting with Adam and leading up through the pages of what happened in ancient Israel. And Paul says, although they, humans, claimed to be wise, they became fools. Think what Eve did in the garden. When she saw the tree, she saw the thing that God had forbidden, and it looked like it would be good for attaining wisdom. And so, claiming to be wise, trying to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory, the honor of ruling on the, on behalf of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Reptiles being snakes, the serpent. So he ends with the thing that Eve did. Exchanged the honor of ruling creation on behalf of God and reached for the wisdom held out by the snake. The great exchange, wisdom for folly. And so Paul, in a context of w- listening to other t- spiritual beings besides God, worshiping other spiritual beings, demons, Paul says, I'm talking to wise people. <laughs> Be wise, not fools. This is the way he reads these the, the story of the Bible. Idolatry is foolishness. Judge for yourselves, flee idolatry. And now let's look at um, a few things that Paul says about idols. What, what, why, first off, why is Paul so concerned about idols? He's already said back in chapter 8 that an idol was no thing at all in the world. Remember that? We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's what he said. Paul knew his Bible. An idol was a man-made image of an unseen spiritual power. It was an image that humans made that represented the rule of a spiritual power on earth. It was nothing but a rock or a stone, though, in and of itself. The idol was nothing at all in the world an idol that people carve. You can see idols today. Just go to India, right? They're everywhere. An idol is made of elements from the periodic table. It's nothing, it's just a created object. But it represents the rule of a spiritual power. The real God, the God of the Bible, the creator God, he has already made His idols, his images, the same word, idol, image, same concept. What is God's image? Living, breathing, talking, singing, worshiping human beings who were made to represent his rule on earth. What do the idols of the nations look like? Not hearing, not seeing, not breathing, lifeless Images that are supposed to rule on behalf of these spiritual beings on earth, but they're just a hunk of rock. They can't rule. And when you feed them, they can't even eat. The priests have to go in the back and eat the food later. Like, oh, the idol ate the food. Um, okay, so the biblical authors love to mock these idols of the people around them who had. Eyes, but could not see, and ears, but could not hear. And they blast God's people prophetically with words of condemnation when God's people run after idols and start chasing them. And they say, you are starting to become like them. Those who make them will be like them, all who put their trust in them. If you run after idols, then you will become spiritually blind spiritually deaf, spiritually lifeless, just like the idol that you worship. The biblical authors do this all the time. Isaiah 45 is one of my favorite places where idols are mocked. Okay? Isaiah 45, 13 to 18. I just want you to think about, first off, the Creator God and the images that He creates. Okay? So, the Creator God... The creator God creates images in his image. Living, breathing, talking images of God. Now what is this human going to create? Well, Isaiah 45, 13-18. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in a human form human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. That's like a little temple. He cut down cedars, or perhaps a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a God and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself, saying, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. This is mocking language. It's supposed to be funny. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me! You are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see, and their minds closed so that they cannot understand. In this ridiculous story that Isaiah is saying, he's just watching what the nations do, and what Israel's doing. A carpenter cuts down a tree, and he takes that tree, and he uses it to eat his house, cook his food, and then he makes a little nice idol out of it and says, Save me, oh my God. Right? He worships the work of his hands. That is the height of idolatry. It all sounds silly in one sense. So you can probably see how the Corinthians, who could maybe reading passages like Isaiah about idols and coming to know the truth about idols... The Corinthians would say, "What's the big deal then, Paul, about going to these silly ceremonies at the type, at the temple and worshipping where where people are worshipping pieces of wood and stones? I know they're not real. It's ridiculous. So what's the big deal?" It's really beneficial for me, by the way, Paul to go to the temple, if I turn down this invitation, I might not get this job. I might not be able to get ahead in society. I might be looked down on in society. I might be put in jail if I don't offer a sacrifice to Caesar at the temple. What, what are you saying, Paul? We know these idols are not real. So can't we just go along with it for a free meal or to, to just get along in society? And Paul's answer is, it is a big deal. Verse 19 to 20. He's not saying an idol is a real God. But in verse 20, he says, the sacrifices made to idols are made to spiritual powers that stand behind the idols. The demonic, these demonic forces, spiritual beings in rebellion against God, angels turned against him. They used idols and idolatrous worship as a way of controlling whole nations of humans and keeping them in spiritual bondage and darkness and fear through the power of lust, money, and power. Money, sex, and power. For the most part, all the idols that the nations have ever imagined can be traced to one of these three things. Money, sex, and power. Okay? Remember that. The god of war. What would that be? Power. Aphrodite, the god of love, sex. Fertility gods, sex. The god of money, like Bacchus, the the party god. Wealth, you know, Abundance. We could go on and on. Human lust for these things, the idols promise, okay? But the idols are only human imaginations of what these spiritual beings behind them look like. The demons behind them, they work for someone, they work for Satan. The God of the sage who blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's true image. So Paul says idolatry is serious because of what idols are connected to. Then he says, well, uh, so let let me um, just back up and just tell you where he gets it from. Paul's not just making this up. He gets it from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 18. So he gets it from his Bible. Here's a blunt translation of this passage. Moses is recounting the ongoing, idolatrous rebellion of the people of Israel in this passage. And he said, Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 18, they made him, Yahweh, jealous with strange things. They enraged him with abhorrent things. They sacrificed to demons, not God. So singular there. They sacrificed to demons, plural, not God. To gods, plural, they had not known. To new gods, who had recently come along, gods your ancestors had not known about. You have forgotten, he's talking to Israel, you have forgotten the rock who fathered you. Remember last week, drinking from the rock Paul's been doing his Bible times in Deuteronomy 32. Because last week he brought up something from Deuteronomy 32 and from Exodus 17. The God is the rock and Christ is the rock. Well here, he's back in Deuteronomy 32. And we'll see he ends in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 22 as well um, of this section. You have forgotten the rock who fathered you and put out of mind the God who gave you birth. So, they sacrifice to demons... Not God, to gods, to Elohim, spiritual beings. That's a better translation of that word. To spiritual beings, plural spiritual beings, that they had not known. So the idols that they're sacrificing are demons in rebellion against God. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, that the pagans are offering their sacrifices to demons, he's taken that from Deuteronomy 32. There are real spiritual powers that are very dangerous and deadly and serious, and they stand behind the idols of the nations. The biblical authors know this, even as they mocked the gods of the other nations who were represented by these worthless idols. They knew that when people offered sacrifices to idols on earth, there were real spiritual powers, the biblical authors knew this, who used those sacrifices to control people. And when the ancient pagans ate some of the sacrifice, and when they drank wine in the presence of the idol and did all kinds of other terrible things, the whole shebang was geared towards connecting you with whatever spiritual force was beyond that idol. And so now that we've looked a bit more closely at Paul's call to flea idolatry and why it was so serious, let's look at his illustrations for why eating food idol-worshiping ceremonies connects you to demons. This is the second point this morning. Uh, and I'll just pause a second. Remember I said money, sex, and power are the three things behind the, the idols of this world? We don't worship shiny gold Buddha figures and things in America as much. I mean, there are some people that are into that, but not really. But the things, the the, the idols behind the idols, the things that people worship, the 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 things that idols represented, those still control whole nations. Right? And even homes. And Satan wants that to happen. To pull us astray through the lures of money and sex and power. And making those things more ultimate than God himself. So we'll end talking a little bit about that. But I just wanted to bring that up right now. Before we go into the illustrations. So let's look at that now. Paul's illustrations. He's going to use these illustrations to try to convince the Corinthians that going to these ceremonies is unwise. And so he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper or communion, and he's also going to talk about Israelite sacrifices. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the illustrations Paul gave, but I'm going to flip them. I'm going to talk about them in the reverse order that he gave them. And the reason is because I want to end with communion because then we're going to go to the Lord's Supper, okay? So, Paul asks a question in verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Literally, share in the altar? And the answer he's looking for, and this is a rhetorical question, the answer is yes. Yes, they do. The word here, participate, is a word that we often use for fellowship, or have communion, partner with, be a part of. Here it seems in verse 18, Paul is saying that Israelites who offer sacrifices to the Lord on the altar outside the temple of Israel and eat some of the sacrifices that came off the altar in the presence of the presence of the Lord, they're actually sharing in some way in the altar. What does that mean? How can you participate or share in an altar? An altar is like a pile of rocks that you burn sacrifices on. What's going on with that? Well, in many ways, the altar is viewed as a kind of table where the Israelites, or even in the ancient world, you would lay out a meal for a spiritual being, or in Israel's case, for Yahweh. Since you can't get the offering up to heaven, you burn it. So it goes up in smoke as a going-up offering. You are symbolically offering a meal to the Lord, and you would eat some of it yourself in God's presence. Now, I'm not talking about sin offerings. Those had different focus and nuance. Right now, we're talking about the offerings that humans would actually eat some of it with the Lord. It was done, it's called like a burnt offering or a fellowship offering. So you would offer some of it to the Lord, and then the worshiper, either the priest or the worshippers, would eat some of the offerings. The idea was that the altar, in the moment of your sacrifice, became a table that you would share a meal with God on. Okay, So it's like you are, you are sharing a meal with the living God on that table. You're offering it to him in an acceptable way. What you're saying is, in those fellowship offerings, and those burnt offerings, I want a relationship with you, God. I, I want a relationship with you. I want to eat in your presence. Temples were on mountains, usually, especially in Israel. This all goes back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were created and placed in a garden on a mountain, we learned that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and they're there in the mountain of God to eat and have fellowship with him in his presence that's why eating meat sacrificed to idols at the pagan altar was such a wrong thing for Christians to do it was like you were having a meal with demons at their table partnering with spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God. So, this is the illustration that Paul gives in verse 18 about the, the Israelite altar worship. And he says that when Israelites you know, have their sacrifices on the altar, it's like they're sharing a meal with God. They're, they're, they're sharing and participating in the altar, in the table. Table fellowship with the Lord. And now he's going to turn to a more relevant example for Christians. Verses 16 and 17 he says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. So um, again, Paul is bringing up communion here as an illustration. And we're going to kind of unpack the, the concept of communion, the Lord's Supper, for the next few minutes. But I just don't want us to lose focus of why he's bringing it up before we look at the details. Remember, he's bringing it up to illustrate why it's bad to eat table, have table fellowship with idols. He's saying it's kind of like a... Eating in an idol temple at an idol's altar is kind of like an anti-Lord's Supper. It's like the opposite of the Lord's Supper. Instead of having table fellowship with Jesus and sharing in in the life of Jesus, you're like having table fellowship with a different spiritual being. Don't do it. So now let's look at what he says. We'll we'll talk about the topic of communion. In fact, the reason we call the Lord's Supper, Jesus' Last Supper, it was a passover meal. And the reason we call it communion is because of this passage. Communion is an old fashioned word that means fellowship or sharing. Okay? That's important. I'll say it again. So if you ever hear us say we're going to have communion or we're going to pass out communion, that's from this passage, right? From 1 Corinthians 10. It means fellowship. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have a sharing. We're going to have a sharing. Communing—it's an intimate word. It's the word Paul uses in these verses. In verse sixteen, he says, "The cup of blessing that we bless." Here, he's referring to the the, the juice, the wine, as a blessed cup—a cup that is blessed by God Himself. That language of a blessed cup is taken from the Israelites' Passover tradition. Remember when they celebrated Passover? They were coming out of Egypt. to leave and hurry and they celebrated a Passover celebration meal with unleavened bread and later Israelites would drink a series of cups of wine to go along with their Passover lamb and one of the last cups they would drink was called the cup of blessing the Passover cup and Paul says Christians celebrating the Lord's Supper as a kind of new Passover meal, bless the cup of blessing. See that? The cup of blessing that we bless. Well, blessing here. There's a cup of blessing. It's a Passover cup. And we're going to drink it like those who are celebrating a Passover. And so because we're celebrating a Passover that's happened, we're going to bless this Passover cup because it was a good thing. We're going to give thanks for it. And as we do that... We enjoy a sharing, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ. Christ himself set this up. He raised the cup long ago when he celebrated the Passover meal on that last night with his disciples. Before he went to be crucified. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Now, on face value, this can sound really weird. Christians, we ought to be honest about that. Drinking the blood of a human. Symbolic or not, it sounds gross, right? What are we? Vampires? People may mock. The early church got mocked for this. A lot. But it's really important that we try to grasp the meaning, the significance behind what we do, and we do it here every week because it is so significant. So to help understand the significance, I'll pull up something from Deuteronomy 32. We've been there a lot. Verse 14. In verse 14, the nation of Israel is being reminded of all the blessings that the Lord God, who was their rock, gave them. God blessed you a lot, Israel. He gave you a lot of things, but you rejected him for demonic idols and the gods behind them. He fed them, Verse 14 says, with the best of the kernels of wheat, that's bread, and from the blood of grapes you drank wine. The blood of grapes. That's one of the only places that that language shows up. Grapes have blood. It's symbolic of the good life. You want to be in the position where you're drinking grape blood. That's good. That's like symbolic of wine, of rejoicing, of blessing, of the good life. When the Israelites viewed the promised land, remember what the spies saw? We saw grapes! And giants. <laughs> okay? Uh, Hope sang a song for the talent show, right? Grapes, like clusters fall, right? Or something like that. Uh, Ten, twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Okay? So grapes. So, it's like a grape is hashtag the good life. Okay, that's the that's the idea. It's symbolic of Eden-like blessing of going back to Eden, a, a fruit garden, to drink the lifeblood of grapes. Though you had to crush them. The grape is crushed. They would trample the grapes, right? In these big round, I mean, dance on these grapes with their bare legs. Really, really sanitary. They didn't have. Um, the health department back in those days and the the blood of the grapes would come out through holes in the bottom of this pit that they would dance in and they would crush them and then you would enjoy the, the lifeblood of the grapes you enjoy the good life at the expense of something that is crushed And so in the bible a cup of grape blood or wine It symbolized the good life, but it also was used to symbolize bloodshed. That's why the blood of grapes can be used as an expression, right? Grape blood. And it began to symbolize bloodshed as a punishment for sin. Instead instead of a grape being crushed so that you might find blessing, you, if you rebelled against the God of life, might be crushed for your sins. Now, in the big picture, zooming out, of the Bible story, all humans have rejected God, like Israel rejected God. We have not sought to enjoy life under God's rule, but instead we've sought to live life our own way. We've not deserved the wine of Eden-like blessing, but instead the cup of wrath. On the cross, instead of us being crushed for our sins, though, Jesus was crushed. This is the heart of the Christian gospel message. Jesus was like a crushed grape. The life of God himself became man, was squeezed out, given for us, that we ourselves who trust in him, would not experience God's crushing punishment for our sins, but instead we would experience life. The blessed life that God originally intended for humans. Eating and drinking in God's presence, enjoying the life that God has given us forever in the coming new creation. So, as Christians, this cup of blessing that we bless is a participation, a sharing, a way of true believers sharing in the blood of Christ because as we drink it, we are showing that we are sharing in the life that Christ has given us, in the life that Christ intends all humans who trust in him to have. And we share in it because Christ was crushed in our place. Jesus, just as the crushing of a great is necessary to enjoy its lifeblood, so the crushing of the Son of God was necessary for us to enjoy life after death because that's what we deserve. This is why Christ can hold up the cup for us and say, this is my blood shed for you. It symbolizes it because the Bible, his Bible, intended a symbolism there with the crushed grave. In the same way, Jesus can say of the Passover bread, this is my body broken for you. Bread must be broken for us to eat it. Jesus compares himself to the bread that has come down from heaven in John 6. His body and lifeblood are symbolized by the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes his body, the cup symbolizes his very lifeblood given by for us, And as we Christians drink from it, we are showing that we are sharing spiritually in Christ's very life. We are communing with Him in a very real, participating with Him in a very real and special way. We are tasting and touching the blessed life that God has given us at the expense of the Son of God who was crushed in our place. And we who taste Jesus... The fruit of his sacrifice, the goodness of his offering on our behalf, we are those who will one day taste the goodness of all of God's new creation in the new world that he's going to make. Now there's one other thing I want to bring up as we consider the Lord's Supper here. And that's the concept that eating the bread doesn't just symbolize our connection to Jesus, but also our connection to each other. That's verse 17 there. Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Here's the image that we should have in our minds as we take the bread in a few minutes. During the last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples— He lifted high the piece of bread, and he broke it. Because it didn't have yeast in it, it cracked, just like ours do. And it became many pieces, yet it was all from one piece. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So just as there is one bread broken into pieces, so there is one body of Christ, which is broken on the cross. And yet, just as the bread became many pieces, as it was broken... So Christ, after His body was broken and raised from the grave, Jesus, now the risen Christ, sends His own Spirit into every body who trusts in Him, so that we all, by the Spirit, now become Jesus, part of Jesus' body on earth. As songs have sung, we are His hands and feet from his own words and when we take communion together as his body as those who have his Holy Spirit in us your spirit is the breath that animates your physical body and the image that the Bible has painted for us God gives us this image by creating humans as breathing talking beings that require spirit breath God gives us that image so that we would have a picture of what it's like when his spirit animates humanity, a body of people, okay? We are to be the body of Christ on earth, and the other part of this image is that Jesus is the head in heaven, okay? And he is our command center. We follow him as his body. And so when we take communion together, we demonstrate the fact that we are all one with each other, if we have trusted in Jesus. We all have the same Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit of the risen Jesus animates our bodies with what? All the fruit of the Spirit, so that we together are his body on earth. And our memory verse of the month is going to be the fruit of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's going to say, what does it look like for the the life of the Spirit to be alive alive in the body? Hmm, Let me think. It's going to look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it's going to look like when the Spirit is animating the body of Christ. That's, that's the idea. When the Spirit is the life of a church, that church will be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And he's gonna, We're getting there in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm getting ahead of myself. But what we are visually experiencing and even tasting as we take the bread... Is not just our connection, our sharing in the body of Christ, but our connection with each other as one family. So here's a few ways that we can apply this again. First, we're demonstrating during this Lord's Supper that we're gonna take, we're gonna go right into the Lord's Supper um, together. We're, we're demonstrating our close connection to Jesus. When we drink the fruit of crushed grapes. We are not saying we are drinking real blood or anything weird like that. We're saying that it is because of the very lifeblood of our creator Jesus shed for us that we won't be crushed for our own sins. But instead we will find life beyond the grave eating and drinking in God's presence forever the wine of the new creation. Micah and Joel, Micah and Amos, I think it is, Amos, yeah, Joel and Amos, sorry, Joel and Amos, the two prophets, both describe the mountains of God's new creation and restored Israel as flowing with wine, okay, that's just a picture of the the blessed life, we will be, what we taste now is a taste of life to come, that's not, I'm not saying we're all going to be guzzling wine all day long, that's not, the, the, the image is the good life or ice cream or <laughs> whatever. Do, what, do what do you... I don't like wine, so... Um, it's too bitter for me. So the Lord's Supper, we, we look back at what Christ has done and we look forward in hope at the same time at what he has purchased for us. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral service. We eat it with our heads down in this really... Like, sometimes it's downright depressing. Okay, like it, it can feel that way. Um, now, yeah, we are. We can reflect on our sins in sorrow, but there's a joyful element to it as well. There's a looking forward. The Passover meal of Israel. Okay. I'll say it this way: the communion is the Christian's Passover meal. We are celebrating our exodus from sin and slavery. And when the Israelites, after they celebrated their Passover, right, they sang on the banks of the Red Sea. It was a celebration for God's rescue. And in the same way, we end our communion time with, with singing, as celebration. Second, when we break the bread and remember, we, when we remember Jesus' body, broken for us, we remember Jesus was broken so that we don't have to be broken for our sins. He died in our place and the more that we grow to understand our sin really really understand that we are sinners, the more I think the Lord's Supper will become precious to us that we can hold in our very hands the symbols that we are forgiven Another thing, as we eat and remember our unity, we remember our unity as a body. We are all together the body of the risen Christ. If you're you're here trusting Jesus today, we are his flesh and blood on earth. We are together waiting for our head to bring us into the new creation where he is. Even as right now we are already enjoying a taste of the new creation through his spirit. So when you take the bread in your hand in a few minutes, I want you to think, you're saying, I am part of the same body as everyone else in this room who is also taking the bread. I am part of the new humanity that God has begun to create, starting with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the first of the risen humans. And you're saying, I am animated by the same spirit who's in the person sitting across from me. The same life force, the same personal empowering presence of God is at work in each one of us. And the final thing I want to mention is that the Lord's Supper, together, what we're about to celebrate, is our great anti-idolatry declaration, okay? As believers, we need to think hard about our participation, our sharing in the things of this world that may link us up with any authority that is not Christ. And link us up with any spirit that is not the spirit of the risen Christ. Idolatry, connecting with any spirit that is not God, idolatry provokes our Lord to jealousy. That's what Paul ends with in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 22. You see that there? And Paul gets that from Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. Deuteronomy says they provoked his jealousy with different gods. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but you know we don't practice sacrifice and idol worship in our community like they did back then. Last time I checked, none of you were... Tempted to sacrifice a sheep to a golden image. You probably, I don't know, I don't think any of us have sheep even, right? But we have plenty of idols in our society. Whenever we treat things in creation like they're more important than Jesus himself, we stand in danger of provoking the jealousy of the Lord. When we treat money like money is our hope of security in life, we act like money and making money is more important than trusting and serving Jesus, and it makes Jesus jealous. When we treat other humans in our lives like they are the center of our worlds, when we say things like, You are my everything, when we become ple- consumed with pleasing other humans, Or with placating their anger. Trying to just keep them happy. Or using our relationships with people to bring us happiness. Ultimate happiness. We make our creator jealous. And that is not an evil jealousy. Like some human jealousy can be. No, there are things that are right even for humans to be jealous about. A husband ought to be jealous of his wife's affections she belongs to him and he to her and not another and it's right for our creator to be jealous of us we belong to him he made us we are his every atom in your body was thought of and breathed out by the living god so as we go to the lord's table i want you to remember these things if this This is for you if you're a follower of Jesus. Second, this act is our great declaration that we all share together in the life of Jesus. It's our declaration that we belong to each other as well. And finally, it's our declaration that we are tasting now what we are hoping to taste one day in the new creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We bless you for the cup of blessing that you poured out for us on the cross. We praise you that you were crushed in our place, pouring out your life so that we might find life. Lord, I pray that you would help these things to do sweet to us this morning as we celebrate now through participation in the body and blood of the Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And ask if uh, Ben and Ben, would you guys come up and uh, pass out the Lord's Supper? This song. Um, this was unplanned, but uh, man, we could sing What is Our Hope of Life and Death? If you remember it. What is our hope? You do this in remembrance of Jesus. And in the same way, we drink the cup. It's not wine, but grapes were crushed for this, right? Same symbol. And it is reddish to symbolize the blood of our Lord that purchased us our freedom. Drink and remembrance.